Good morning. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4 just to get us started this morning. I'm reading from New American uh, Standard Bible. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. We, let's pray. Father, we pray that as uh, we look into uh, this passage today, that you would encourage our hearts. We thank you for the message of salvation. We thank you for changing people's lives. And Lord, we, we pray that you would just encourage our hearts of the power of the gospel and of your working in our lives, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. About 30 years ago, my sister and uh, my mom and, and a couple aunts went to Scotland because some of our uh, ancestors came from Scotland. My maternal mother was a Leask, and the Leask had just become a clan on their own. There were enough of them to be a clan, and they went over to see some of the places and, and some of the history of our family and uh, found out that our kilt was a ugly orange-yellow. Um, I thought we should rally the clan and beat up some smaller clan that had a nicer kilt and uh, take it. But um, today, it was interesting to find out about the history of our ancestors, but today we're looking at the history of our spiritual family. This is who we are. This is how we started. This is our heritage. These things are our things because of Jesus Christ. So let's... Uh, do a, a quick review just to keep everybody on the same page. In Acts chapter 1, Luke picks up the gospel uh, where he ended uh, his gospel. And during the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, the Lord Jesus made many appearances as especially to the apostles, so they could be eyewitnesses to the truth of his re resurrection. We're going to hear that. In today's uh, passage, during the Lord's last meeting with them on the Mount of Olives, he commanded them to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit, which he had previously promised to send. The disciples had a question about, is, this, is the kingdom going to come now? And the Lord clarified it. No, um, that's not for you to know. But I have a task for you. You're not to know the timetable of, of the future events, at, at least now. Later, some of that would be revealed. But the task they had was to be his witnesses here on earth. That God had kept his promise. He had sent the Messiah. He had died for sins. We can be forgiven of our sins. The Savior has come. And then he ascended to heaven. And then we looked at the, uh, Bjorn took us through the last half of the chapter, chapter one. 
And while they waited, they prayed, and then they felt a need to to choose a successor to take the place of Judas uh, among the apostles. And Bjorn shared five lessons we can learn from their experience. These these things are given for for us uh, to take truths out of it. Uh, Sometimes it's just recorded what they did, but sometimes there's principles there. And Bjorn did a, a wonderful job laying out these five principles. Obey what we know God has instructed us to do. The Lord Jesus said, wait. And they waited there in Jerusalem. While they waited, they stayed uh, in fellowship with other believers, and they seek the advice and counsel from them. They began to discuss, what about Judas's place? What do we need to do with that? And, and they fellowshiped together. They, they talked it over. They prayed fervently to seek God's help. Peter uh, began to point out some scriptures that would give them direction. And today, we can know and search the scriptures for help for us. And then they acted in faith on the direction God gave. And that's what we're to do. Now they cast lots, which was what they did in the Old Testament. The proverb says the lot that's cast is, is in God's control. And so often when facing decisions, they would cast lots. This is the last time in scripture you find lots being cast. And the reason for that is in our scripture today, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And as they need direction, we find the Holy Spirit gives direction to his people. And so let's take a look at chapter 2. And we find that when the day of Pentecost had come. The word Pentecost means 50. In the Jewish religion calendar, it was a significant day. Uh, The Jews had seven Religious holy days. Sometimes they were a single day. Sometimes they were a whole week. Sometimes they kind of overlapped a little bit on each other. There were four in the spring. There were uh, three in the fall with about a four-month period in between. And many people see in these feasts there is a prophetic element. And and the scripture kind of indicates that that's true. Uh, Pentecost is the fourth of these spring ones that happened in the spring, the last of the four. The first one was Passover, where uh, they remembered God redeeming Israel from, uh, rescuing Israel from the death angel, where a lamb had to die and the blood had to be put on the doorposts. And we see that as a prophetic prefiguring of the death of the Lord Jesus as God's lamb. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Just like a lamb had to die so that they would be saved from the death angel, Jesus Christ had to die so we would be saved from the judgment of God. The Sabbath after Passover, the next day, um, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It, It... Uh, lasted a week. The Jewish women were to uh, go through their house and take all the leaven out of the house and and clean the whole house. Um, One Jewish author I was reading about this said he remembers, or a Jewish Christian, he remembers his mom would take leaven and sprinkle it in every room 
And then she would go and clean it all out, knowing if she got that, she would get all the other. And uh, this feast, um, some believe, pictures the sinlessness of Christ, and particularly um, show, showing that his body would not decay in the grave. But it, it is a statement of, of the need for holiness of God's people. So the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 5, after talking about the Passover, in 5.8, Paul says, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. God wants us to live holy lives. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, is kind of a picture of, of Christ not decaying in the tomb, but of the holiness God wants to bring into our lives, cleaning out the sin that's in our lives and living holy lives for, for God. The third feast was the Feast of First Fruits. Passover, next day Sabbath, beginning of the week-long um, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the, the first day, the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, was the Feast of First Fruits. It was the beginning of the barley harvest, so they would take a sheaf of the barley uh, harvest that, and take it into the temple and thank God for the barley harvest. It was a picture of the promise of the full harvest that was coming, of God's goodness in, in the provision for them. And it pictures um, Christ's resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ has been raised the first fruits of those who are asleep. When the Bible talks about people asleep in Christ, it's talking about people who have died. We will see Judy again. Why? Christ the first fruit, that sheaf, that first one raised that demonstrates the promise of the full harvest. Every person who's trusted Jesus Christ will be raised from the dead. The death of Jesus Christ guarantees it. Paul says this mortal must put on immortality. Why? Because Christ is risen from the dead. And Pentecost was the last of these four um, feasts. Uh, they would take from the Sabbath following Passover, they would go seven weeks. The Jewish name for it is the Feast of Weeks. They would go seven weeks and one day. And on that day, the 50th day, was the Feast of Pentecost. The Jews believed that was the day that that celebrates the giving of the law and the day Israel became a nation before God. And it prefigures the giving of the Spirit and the beginning of the church. And so on this day, Pentecost, um, God, in keeping uh, the promise of the Lord Jesus, sends the Spirit of God um, and begins the church. By the way, the next one is the Feast of Trumpets, which many believe pictures the rapture of the church. If you're interested in that kind of thing, Bill McDonald's commentary uh, in 
Leviticus 26 gives a little bit of that. And there's a lot of books like uh, The Feasts of the Lord. Uh, This is by Marvin Rosenthal, uh, a Jewish believer. Um, And they go through the feasts in, in much more detail. So this very important day, the thing I want to catch is this was a significant day. That's why there were all these visitors to Jerusalem. This is the last of the the four holy days in the spring. And so Jews have come to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And we have the coming of the Spirit. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterances. There were three physical evidence on that first coming of the Spirit. There was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. The word for wind and the word for spirit are the same Greek word. And uh, the Lord Jesus said, uh, you can't tell how the spirit moves. He's like the wind. You can't tell where it came from. You can't tell where it's going. Uh, The wind is a, a great picture of the spirit of God, especially in its power. I saw a little uh, blurb on a, on a tornado, they said the tornado started, and 20 minutes later, it was a, a mile wide, and it was picking up cars and throwing them. Power. The Spirit is, is a source of power. And, and the fact that it filled the whole house shows the corporate nature. All of us participate in this. And then there were tongues of fire that rested on each one of them. Fire was often used in the Old Testament to portray the presence of God. We think of the burning bush. We think of when they had the sacrifices in the tabernacle the first time. Fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifices, showing God's presence and acceptance of the sacrifices. We think of the the cloud of fire that protected Israel as they wandered through the wilderness wanderings. And it showed God's presence with them. And so these tongues of fire, uh, tongues of uh, symbolizing, uh, reminding of God's, uh, of the task Jesus had uh, committed to his church. You will be witnesses uh, to me. And then there are these languages. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 4, and they began to speak in other tongues. Notice what happens, verse 5. And there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya and around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. There was um, the ability, these are other languages. Luke gives 15 different geographical um, locations. And so all of a sudden, they have the ability to speak languages that they have never learned. 
In fact, the people are amazed because they say, these are Galileans. Galileans were the, the sticks. They were the people from up in the hills. How many languages you spoke in a group this size we have? I know we have some Portuguese. I know there's some Spanish. I know there's some French. But here we are, a much larger group, in, in one of the most educated countries in the world. We couldn't put together 15 languages if we had to, and most of you wouldn't want to try the language you learned in high school or college. These people have the ability to speak perfectly in the native languages, the dialect of the people from all these different 15 geographical. And the response is total bewilderment. Now we're told that they were filled with the Spirit in verse 4. Again, very quickly, just a comparison between baptism of the Spirit, because we say this is when the baptism of the Spirit first happened, the church began. You say, well, how do you know that? Flip back to Acts chapter 11, very quickly, Acts chapter 11, verses 15 and 16. Um, Paul is in Jerusalem. He's spoken to Cornelius. Gentiles have been saved. And he's talking to the Jews who are asking questions about his actions. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 11, Peter says, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I to stand in God's way? Paul says the same thing happened to Cornelius that happened to us at Pentecost. And what was that event? It was the baptism of the Spirit. So what is the baptism of the Spirit? And how does it differ um, to being filled with the Spirit? Well, first of all, baptism of the Spirit's never commanded. You're never told, get baptized in the Spirit. It is a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. It's one time. The filling of the Spirit is commanded in Ephesians 5.18. Um, the baptism of the Spirit uh, puts us into the, the church. 1 Corinthians 12.13, For by one Spirit we all were baptized in the one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And so the, the baptism of the Spirit is the Spirit putting us into the body of Christ, the church. We have no ability to put you into the body of Christ. But when you receive Jesus Christ, the Spirit puts you into the body of Christ. It is his sovereign work. And it's true of every believer. No believer is exempt from the baptism of the Spirit. It happens at the moment of salvation. But filling is personal and individual. It is a decision each individual believer decides whether or not to give control of his life to the Spirit so that the believer may serve God in some effective way. The filling of the Spirit is that what, which empowers the Christian life and empowers service for God. And all of them were filled with the Spirit. Uh, again, uh, just... 
We talked about this in Galatians. Just a few things are out on the, the buffet in front of the office. There is that outline of Acts with every event that occurs in each section. There is Bill McDonald's uh, article on how to be filled with the Spirit. And I put another 20 copies of A.W. Tozer's book, How to Be Filled with the Spirit, out there if those things could, could be helpful to you. But the power of the church is the Spirit of God. And in the very beginning, God says, here's the pattern. When they came to faith, they were filled with the Spirit of God. And we're three or four times we're going to see this same group of people being referred to being filled again. It's a recurring uh, situation where you're, you're facing something new. You need the filling of the Spirit. And so these, these Jewish people that are hearing all these people speaking these languages, they're confused, they're bewildered. What's going on? These people are from the sticks. How are they speaking all these languages? What does this mean? And there's always somebody in the crowd that has a smart aleck answer. And so someone says, well, they're drunk. And so Peter begins his sermon. And his defense is, verse 14, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Drunkards don't get drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. They may have a hangover, but they don't get drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. It's way too early. He says, listen, I'll tell you what this is. Verse 16, but this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit and they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to, into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter says this is the fulfillment or what the fulfillment of, of this prophecy will look like. This prophecy is a prophecy about when Jesus Christ comes back to reign on earth. It goes, Peter stops in the middle of a verse. The rest of the verses go on and talk about judgment on the nations. Survivors in Israel because of, of the terrible time that this is. But Peter says, you are seeing in, in these people who are speaking in other languages, you are seeing what the heart of God wanted for Israel. This is what God wanted for all of Israel. This is the heart of God. He wants, not his spirit, in the Old Testament, spirit would come for a moment to, or a, a period of time to help someone minister for God, but most people were not uh, indwelt by the spirit of God. This is the heart of God. He wants his spirit to be poured out on all of his people, and you're seeing it. 
These people, the Spirit of God, have been poured out on. Why isn't it happening to us? Because there's a problem. There's a problem. Look at verse 36. This is where he's going to end up. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. God sent the Messiah, and you rejected him and crucified him. These people believed him and trusted him, and God has poured out his spirit upon them, but you rejected him. Now, Peter's going to, in the rest of his sermon, he's going to lay out the proofs that Jesus was this Messiah. Real quickly, verse 22. Many of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Jesus did miracles, deeds that had supernatural power. They were wonders. It left people in awe. So many times you see that in the gospel. Jesus healed a deaf and a mute man, and everybody's going, whoa. And these were signs. They were deeds done to validify who Jesus was. So Nicodemus says, we know you're a man sent from God. But the Jews, while they may have said, yes, um, Jesus is um, a man sent from God, they would question whether he was the Messiah because um, he had been killed um, and died and was executed as a criminal. He was hung on a cross. We saw that on Galatians, that a person hung up like that was cursed by God. And, of course, Paul explains in Galatians, those who didn't obey the law perfectly were under a curse, and he bore our curse Peter here says, verse 23, this man delivered over by predetermined plan and knowledge of God, you nailed on a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter shows that this action was part of God's will. And he's going to show that it was predicted in the scripture. He goes on, verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue exults. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope because you did not abandon my soul in Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter, can you imagine? How many passages can you quote? He's quoted a whole section of Joel. He, now he's quoting a whole section of Psalm 16. And he quotes these words of David. And he says, who's David talking about? Well, he's not talking about himself. Verse 29, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died, was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. A thousand years after David died. We know where his tomb is, and if you go in there, you're not going to find his body. You're going to find dust because he's decayed. So David's not speaking of himself. He's speaking of the Messiah. 
And Peter says, the Messiah, as a prophet, David was predicting that Christ's death would not result in his abandonment to the grave, nor the disintegration of his body, but that death would be followed by and conquered by resurrection. Isn't that a great word for when you've had some people die? Jesus conquered death by his resurrection. And Peter said, this is the Lord Jesus. Verse 30, and because he was a prophet, knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. He says, here's my third proof. First proof, look at the miracles he did. Second proof, his resurrection. Third proof, we're all standing here telling you we're eyewitnesses of his resurrection. Fourth proof. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus has ascended. The coming of the Spirit is proof that he sits at the right hand of God. And that comes from the scriptures. David, in Psalm 110, speaks of seeing the Lord Jesus seated uh, next to the throne of God the Father and having power and authority. And he sent the Spirit. There's my four proofs, Peter says. And he said, you killed him. You killed him. I bet you could hear a pin drop. Not since Nathan said to David, you're the man. Have people been confronted like this? The application. Notice the response of the audience. Now that when they heard this, they are pierced to the heart. That's the work, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit through Peter's words. And they said to Peter and the rest of all the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? What are we going to do? <laughs> this one who can send the Spirit, and here's the demonstration of it. This one who sits at the right hand of God the Father, we butchered. Who can save us from this one? What can we do? And so Peter says to them, Peter said to them, Repent, each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, Repent. This word repent is used all through Acts, it, it is changing your thinking. Changing your thinking to saying, yes, Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus really is this one that God promised. And put your faith in him. It's under the umbrella of repentance, and you'll be forgiven of your sins. You don't need baptism to be forgiven of your sins. But it says, repent and be baptized, each one of you. Repent, the verb is in the plural. 
you plural be baptized in the forgiveness of your sins. And each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus is in the singular. He's saying, listen, you need to repent and come to the Lord Jesus. And if you do, you'll be forgiven your sins. But now you need to demonstrate that. And every one of you who come to the Lord Jesus and repent and receive him by faith as your Savior, you need to be baptized. Each one of you individually need to be baptized to demonstrate my faith is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that makes me right with God. And, you'll, and God will stamp his approval on that by giving you the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this is for you and your children and for all those that um, even those who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to them. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, be saved from this perverse generation. Each person in this room is just as guilty as the Jewish nation of the death of Jesus Christ. It was our sins that took him to that cross. And there was that day, 3,000 people added to the church. Can you imagine if one Sunday night, this coming summer, if the Lord hasn't come, our evangelism teams go out, and the next Sunday, 3,000 people are trying to come through the doors? They went up by 30 times. If we went up by 30 times, we would have to have about um, 12,000. And, and so uh, next week when we, the passage is looked at, you'll see why the church had to organize. But look at the power of the gospel. I have two applications. I know we're a little over, but um, what's our response? We say how the Jewish believers on that day responded. How do you respond this morning? Let me... Say there's two groups of people in this auditorium. There are probably some people here who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You probably, you may know all about the Lord Jesus. You may have grown up hearing about him. But you have never, as those people that day, been confronted with the fact Jesus died for you. And you need to repent, change your thinking, and receive him by faith. And if you're here, I want to encourage you to come to the Lord Jesus. Gail and I were watching uh, a TV show, and they had some Choctaw Indians in obviously a religious service singing. But they were singing in their native tongue. And I said to Gail, I wish I knew what they were singing. And she said, Google it. And sure enough, Google had it. And what they were singing was, Sinner, can you hate the Savior? And I just want to read, there's just two verses in the chorus. But instead of hate, you can put the word spurn, reject, or even ignore. Because if you ignore the Savior, you're going down the same path as those that hate him viciously. And those... Choctaw Indians were singing, Now the Savior stands a-pleading, 
at the sinner's bolted heart. Isn't that interesting? Bolted heart. Now in heaven, he's interceding, undertaking the sinner's part. The chorus goes, sinners, can you hate the Savior? Will you thrust him from your arms once he died for your behavior? Now he calls you to his charms. What's he doing right now? Now he's waiting to be gracious. Now he stands and looks on thee. See what kindness, love, and pity shine around on you and me. Lord Jesus is present here today, just like he was present that day. And if you're here seated in your seat and you aren't ready to face death because you don't know you have a Savior, Jesus is waiting to come to you if you'll respond to him. And so the chorus goes, sinners, can you, can you ignore the Savior? Will you thrust him from your arms? Once he died, and he was dying for your behavior, not his. Now he calls you to his charms. And I just encourage you, if you're here and you don't know for sure you're headed to heaven, come talk to us. Or there in your seat, Peter ended that quote from, from Joel with the words, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You come to the Lord Jesus. You call him as a sinner needing a savior. Well, what about those of us who are Christians? In Warren Wiersbe's comments on Acts 2, he quotes Vance Habner. We are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Who we elect this fall, or next, whenever it is, will not change the hearts of men. The gospel of Jesus Christ will. And if we're going to carry that message with power, like our ancestors, we have to be filled with the Spirit of God under his control. Someone has said baptism of the Spirit is me belonging to the body of Christ. Filling is me giving my body to the Spirit. Giving him control, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Who's in control of your life? As we walk out that door into a world that needs to hear the gospel, who's going to empower you? If it's, if it's you, there'll be a lot of times you won't speak. And we won't speak with power. But if we come to the, to the Lord Jesus, if we come to the Spirit and say, listen, I want you to take control of my life. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to live for you. I want you to work through my life. And we trust him by faith that that's exactly what he'll do. And then we respond moment by moment to his guidance, to his word. We will ignite lives by the Spirit of God. That's what they did. 
That's our heritage. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for this moment of, of our family history that you have recorded for us. And Lord, we pray for a world where people are ignoring the Savior. Some don't know, and we need to tell them. Some know, but they need to be invited. Some need to see the truth of it in lives. We pray for the funerals that will be happening over the next several days. That as the lives of Judy and Dave Rogers down in Cedar Rapids, uh, as they are lifted up and, and people see the, remember the reality of their faith, may it bear a witness to the lost. Jesus is alive. He lives in people's lives. Live in our lives, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.